You're listening to a Morley Radio production. Welcome to Artcast Season 3, Episode 5. Artcast is presented by Matt G, who is Program Area Manager of Fine Art at the Chelsea Centre, which is part of Morley College London. The podcast is a series of informal discussions with professional artists and designers, accompanied by students who are studying with us here at the Chelsea Centre. In terms of students this time, we are joined with Laura Leon, who is from our Access to HE in Art and Design. We will also be joined by artist Matthew Stone. Matthew Stone graduated from Camberwell College of Arts in 2004. He currently stages performances and films. In 2007, his first solo show entitled Future Hindsight took place at Union in London. In November 2009, Stone topped the arts section in a Power Players Under 30 list, which was compiled by the Sunday Times. Stone frequently collaborates with FKA Twigs and has created the album artwork for 2019's album Magdalene. This is one of my favourite LPs at home, and I have to say that the artwork is reproduced beautifully with ultra-high definition print quality and spot varnishing. The first question I ask all my guests uh, is, what is your favourite colour and why? Hmm, interesting. The first thing that popped into my head was red, but I would actually argue for green. <laughs> and I, I'd, my so my living room is like a deep forest green, um, the majority of it. And I have a lot of other green stuff happening in the room. And I also just got back from Marrakesh and I bought some uh, um, some green ceramics from the Sahara um, as a kind of tamagrut is a place in the middle of the Sahara where they make these beautiful green kind of emerald ceramics and uh it's still a kind of secret as to how they they make the glaze so I guess that would be my answer today <laughs> thanks so I was, I was wondering if you could sort of go back to sort of art school days and talk maybe about what kind of work you were making have you have you always been a painter or did you work with other mediums within the fine art realm? So I went to Camberwell College of Arts and um, I actually started on the graphic design course uh, in the year 2000 and I was 18 so I'd done a two-year BTEC um, rather than the kind of A-levels foundation route um, and was told when starting on the graphics course that I was effectively joining a um, a fine art degree with deadlines. So essentially we'd be given deadlines and uh, the implication was that it would just be more dynamic than studying painting or something like that. And we were told that we may leave as, um, could well leave as an abstract painter was one of the things that they said. But, um, and that was really, really fun. Uh, and I spent two years doing that. But then during my second year, uh, the tutors were kind of saying, we're not sure that this is graphics. Maybe you should be talking to the fine art department, which I already had been. Um, and so then I transitioned to painting. And um, and I was making paintings while I studied painting, but I was also doing performances, making sculpture, uh, making I made a kind of tarot card set and a I made that I was making like kind of effectively like performance costumes and things like that. Um and it but then despite the fact that I was making kind of figurative oil paintings, I my degree show ended up being largely photography. Um so there was a big kind of uh digitally sort of Photoshop collaged uh quite sort of fantastical image of me and my friends kind of lying draped over each other and also flying up into the sky. Okay. That sounds really interesting. I was just wondering, obviously your uni education shaped a lot of your career path after. Um, would you do anything different if you have to go back? Not so much while I was at 
I mean, I feel like the really important thing for me was the social aspect of being at art school. Um, so a lot of the friendships that I made in halls of residence went on to kind of define a lot of the creative projects that I did that kind of deviated from a fine art or a strictly fine art context where I was working with friends who were fashion designers who'd been at St. Martin's and, um, making music for their fashion shows and things like that. Um, so I don't know about doing anything differently actually at art school. I sometimes think back on some of the things that I did that were essentially part of kind of underground and club culture and wonder whether I would have been better served to have kind of more decisively contextualized some of those sort of happenings within a gallery context. So I was like um, part of an art collective and uh, we were squatting. So we were taking over big empty buildings, organizing exhibitions and then having huge after parties. And another time I'd been looking at the work of um, Joseph Boyce, sort of post-war German conceptual artist and thinking about the way that he, but also the way that Andy Warhol had kind of integrated their social lives into art so there was like Warhol had his factory Joseph Boyce was saying that you know everything was art and that everybody could be an artist and I felt like um the collaborative sort of multi-author performative happenings that were happening in the squats were very much part of my practice and I thought that that was really obvious to everybody else and it might have been in terms of like vibes and it seeming cool and exciting. But I think in hindsight, I wonder, yeah, whether or not I should have really kind of said, no, you know, you have to look at this is a, this is an artwork. And I think that by putting something in the gallery. So sometimes I kind of reflect on that and whether I w- would or should have done that differently. But then ultimately, I also feel like a lot of that stuff couldn't have been captured in a gallery context. And that there was something more magic about it because of the context that it happened yeah. in. But I suppose I could have done both. But yeah. <laughs> I guess like uh, an underground sort of music happening can that that's a multifaceted artwork. You consider the posters, the flyers, the the music, the the space, how the space works, how the vibes connected. I, I think almost you can't necessarily separate the music with the artwork. It sounds like you sort of organize that as a as a sort of whole. Yeah. And it and and that, and that's kind of also what I meant by saying it's a multi-author thing is, is that it was social sculpture in the sense that like the audience is as much like part of the activation of that as like sort of the creators. And that sort of fed into your art later on, right? Like your exhibition um, with the lasers uh, that it, do you think it stems from those underground I definitely have kind of kept thinking about like collaboration and scene and yeah and people together and things like that um and yeah and looking at like I'm much more solitary these days I live in the countryside now so it's kind of like (laughs) um yeah but I do I do think I mean I, I I also had an idea of what I wanted to do when I got to London before I got to London. So I was very much like, had this idea in my head. Weirdly, when I was very young, I I was, I remember being worried that squatting would no longer be legal by the time that I had kind of got to London, which I think is unusual for a child, but I had this idea and it was definitely informed by, yeah, reading about Warhol's factory and wanting to be part of like a vibrant scene and around other creative people who were kind of I guess they are inventive with how they live their lives interesting yeah that social sculpture element really resonates I'm thinking of like some kind of underground nightclubs in particular places like Berghain and Berlin where it's it's very much almost like the crowd is curated um and it's just like a completely different world like people I don't know what it is it's hard to sort of articulate um but yeah totally makes sense um Cool. So in terms of your practice now, I was wondering 
what sort of 3D modeling modeling software you normally use. I'm getting into using Blender quite a bit, and I was wondering, is that something that feeds into the practice? I wish I'd learned Blender. Um, I, I, I use Cinema 4D, um, and I think everything that I do in Cinema 4D, you probably could do in Blender. Um, uh, but it, but essentially, I mean, I use I use quite a few different pieces of software, um, ranging from Daz 3D, which is a piece of free software that comes with um, these kind of like mannequin like posable figures. You can make kind of endless adjustments to, uh, and then also actually pose them within the software. So that was kind of where I started in terms of like generating figures. Um, there are some images where I've like used some 3D scanning and things like that, but largely um, I have these reconfigurable rigged characters that come out of um, Daz 3D, which is really fun to play with um, and quite intuitive, which was useful for me because I've always been quite techy and into software, but um, I sort of work from an angle of learning how it is how I, how I can achieve what I want to do rather than being a kind of a generalist. Mm. Um, but yeah, so there's Daz 3D, there's Photoshop in there, there's Marvelous Designer, which I use, which is really good for simulating cloth. Um, I use 3D Coat, which is um, a piece of software that does lots of different things, but I use it primarily in the way that um, people might use something like Substance Painter. I've just found it's good for what the way that I work um, in terms of stamping images and brush strokes onto the models. Um, and so, there, yeah, there is, it feels like there are different bits of software that do different parts of the process uh, better than others. Um, I work with an assistant who uh, is like a little bit more technical than me. So I will sometimes kind of be like, I don't know how to do this and set her with the task of working out how to do it and then I learned from her. <laughs> I was curious what the biggest challenge um, was that you had to face in regards to digital art but now I feel like you just pass them on. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> I mean the technical stuff feels like it never ends because yeah. something that works at one point might suddenly kind of like not just not seem to work in the same way so I've gotten into the habit of when I work out something and it seems to be working particularly well, I will like make a load of screenshots, make a load of notes, just so that I, if I'm coming back to it again, I don't have to work out all the minutiae again, because they'll be like, oh, if this setting is set like this, but with that setting set like that, then you get the right level of transparency or something like that. And I always, think that I'm integrating that and going to be able to remember that but actually having making those notes like literally I feel like I'm so grateful to my past self when I come to do something <laughs> and I find that I have actually left those types that those sort of breadcrumb trail yeah no, I, I can absolutely relate if it's not written down I'm not going to remember it <laughs> yeah but it's yeah. remembering to write it down so. yeah that too <laughs> And then beyond the sort of 3D modeling, you, with the Red Studio work that you made, you incorporated older artworks using AI. Is that? Could you talk to us a little bit about how that process works and how you use that technology? I think it's is it something called Dull E two? Yes. Be, yeah. Yeah. So essentially, I was uploading my own images to to Dali, and the AI um, has. Um, an option to create like variables. So you can upload an image, it will analyze the image and create like, I think it's three or four. I think at the time it was more that, um, yeah, it would make these variables of what it thinks is happening in the image. And that was really fascinating to upload my own images and see aspects of things that I had perhaps unconsciously worked towards being kind of recognized as a tendency and then repeated back at me, but differently. And so um, when I first started using that, I, yeah, there was a very, <laughs> it's a very intense sort of like 72 hour period of just like going very deeply into working out how to, how to guide it 
like because essentially I had to change the image to get different results. So I was working in Photoshop really fast, like throwing in an extra colorful brush stroke or like changing the color of the hair. But rather than working in this very kind of fine-tuned, detailed way, I realized that I could just kind of uh, be quite slapdash and quick and that that would then throw up different outcomes. Um, And so it was was interesting and very different to the way that I work um, ordinarily. But the outcomes, uh, some of the outcomes felt like kind of the seed of an artwork. They they were kind of visually exciting or they introduced like something aesthetically that was unexpected or that I perhaps wouldn't have done or thought to do without that prompt. Um, but they didn't, they, they were like interesting images, but they didn't feel like completed artworks. So I took those images and kind of folded them back into my process. So I started using the brush strokes that I use as texture and using glass textures with brush strokes on it to kind of diffract those AI images and push them to a point where I felt like I could use them uh, as an artwork. And that wasn't so much about um, like needing to prove that I had done some work, you know, in terms of like, if I had been able to use the AI to uh, create finished, what felt like finished works, I would have done that. But it was just, it didn't feel like, and I'm sure we're not far away from it, but it didn't feel like the technology was there yet. Um, Like I couldn't have printed them very big without the quality breaking down on. And yeah, so, um, so very much ended up being a tool within the process. When I first started using it, it was so exciting and exhilarating to see images arise that quickly because mm. my process can be quite slow. Um, I felt I felt like I'd kind of closed some gap in the creative process that it was just like, okay, all of this struggle is gone and I can just like have that moment of like watching an artwork arise over and over again. And it's still, it is still exciting in that way, but I sort of realized, okay, like actually they're not quite finished and it's all this work that probably ended up taking just as much time <laughs> as without, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so then um, I used images of those works within other works that I was constructing in 3D software and things like that. So I used those AI images as textures onto 3D models. So I represented artworks within artworks, mm. um, which felt a little bit like uh, the way that we see artworks on screens. So you're lo- always looking at an image of an artwork these days. Um, people sort of talk about digital art uh and like physical art um which i i don't uh, i think that that's a, a a bit of a confusing distinction because my my argument is is that all digital art is experienced on physical hardware anyway and also all analog art is digitized and seen on screens as well at this point so yeah yeah, I was wondering if you could talk to us about this term, uh, de-virtualized, that I've heard to use. Um, and I saw your show recently at UNIT in London, and I was wondering how important this transition from virtual reality, or do you deem them as virtual paintings, even though they are printed on linen? And I, and I was also wondering um, what the sort of... Um, what why you sort of choose to have linen um exposed and or mm. is that is that a sort of aesthetic that related to certain art history or like yeah um so i'm gonna work backwards start with the linen so um i think that um so the linen is obviously a very organic material and it's one that reveals a lot of the sort of uh it has physical eccentricities that are bound to the medium. Um, and obviously it is also um, <clears throat> an art, has an art historical context. Um, the raw painting onto raw linen is something that 
I think people associate a lot with Francis Bacon, who um, would um, paint, who would flip over uh, the linen because it would have been primed white on the other side and then paint on the back of it, which I think from a conservator's perspective is a nightmare. But um, yeah. <laughs> but the stuff that I use has it um, has a clear prime primer on it, and I. I kind of feel like in a sense it actually exists as a product probably because of that you know what was established by <laughs> by you know people wanting to kind of oh i want to be like francis bacon and paint directly onto the brown linen um but i think it also um i find that by selectively printing onto it and leaving areas of it visible not only am i kind of grounding the work in something that is very uh physical and organic um it simultaneously has this like double function of becoming like an infinite void behind the marks so in the same way that you know like there are i don't know like like caravaggio's paintings have a lot of kind of depth where there is this um you're kind of like looking into a shadowy void um like there's something that happens when looking at the if you engage with the imagery that of my works printed onto the linen then you kind of have to forget about the flatness of the linen and allow it to become this open space behind the image and so i really liked the fact that this very very sort of like physical thing that does play this cognitive trick of kind of reminding us to look at these images as if they are paintings mm. um actually provides the function of creating virtual space mm. um and i think that whilst i'm working with virtual space in the sense that we understand the term within 3d modeling software virtual reality um virtual space has always existed in painting that exists to suggest to illusionistically suggest um, a sense of depth and perspective. And I sometimes feel like there's a kind of cognitive thing happening where digital images are, we think of them differently as, you know, somehow separate from the rest of the history of like human image making. Whereas actually it's just very clearly a, an extension of that. And yeah. Do you think maybe one day people's general perspectives might change maybe I mean, it's hard to predict the future, but <laughs> maybe it'll got to a point where people were just sort of so used to that world of digital art and used to the world of like NFTs and mm. yeah, potentially just. I think most people are. I think most people, um, like I was talking to a friend of mine uh, who's, you know, not in any way related to culture, you know, doesn't think of themselves as someone who's like has connections to art or the art world and things like that. And they were talking about the animation on the weather app on their phone and how it's really cool because it's linked to data. And like when it rains, like there's an animation of rain on their phone. Yeah. And I, I, I was sort of struck by the fact that a lot of people who think quite seriously about art wouldn't be able to see that. Mm. Like they, they, they wouldn't see that as art, you know, because there are these, you know, like important art, art historical ideas of like, you know, what art is and what the purpose of art is. And, and yeah, and it's, it's really interesting. To, so I, I think in a way, um, um, a lot of people actually engage with a lot more visual culture as art than people who are perhaps trained in art. Mm. Um, and yeah, and you know, that might be be in a kind of simplistic sense, um, comparatively, but but I think in one sense there 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 is a kind of yeah, shift. But I do think that there is some sort of like vibe of the digital that intersected with the pandemic and the rise mm -hmm. of things like Zoom that added a kind of spooky layer to it and this feeling that somehow like um that like looking at screens is like different whereas actually we've been like watching movies and 
you know, hallucinating in that realm very comfortably for a long time. So yeah, yeah that's true actually. Yeah. Uh, Matt they mentioned the NFTs before. Um mm. and I know you've um you've uh, uploaded a few. Uh what was your experience with that? What made you decide to go into it? Um and what do you think the pros and cons are to to NFTs? Yeah, so I mean I um I discovered NFTs um in the middle of 2020. Mm-hmm. Um and I think because of the nature of my work, people who were involved in NFTs had kind of reached out to me and said, you should get involved in this. And I, like most people, didn't understand it when I first encountered it. Um but I feel like I was lucky that um I had that kind of sort of six to nine month um like period of like looking at it um before it all sort of exploded um and uh in terms of popular because obviously there is crypto art and that's something that's been going on i think the first nft is on filecoin or something is like 2014 or something like that right um so i'm very much like not what is referred to as being an og in the space um i came in and released my first nft in march of 2021 um but it was very it was really exciting um at the beginning of it um and it felt like uh, a lot of things were changing there was like everybody was on this app called clubhouse and talking about nfts and i would like introduce someone who i thought would be interested to it and they'd be like oh yeah i don't know and then i'd see them and they'd spent like four days learning about nfts and nothing else and it'd been a total rabbit hole and so so it was a real like um for people who are sort of like really into new technology and things like that there was a moment where that was there was a lot of heightened energy around that stuff um and i think for me like i've always simultaneously wanted to be uh involved and kind of validated by the art world but simultaneously right. i've also felt um uh uncomfortable with the elitism of the art world and felt that that it doesn't serve enough artists so in a sense i wanted I found it scary, to be honest, to release NFTs mm. at the beginning. I felt that there was a huge critical lens on them, and um, uh, it was psychologically, it was a big shift uh, in terms of trying to sell my work myself. I'd sold print editions in the past, but to go online and be like, this is my art, and it's expensive, and you should pay for it, and it's this much, and then this culture of like celebrating the sales and things like that it's quite different from working with a gallery and kind of perhaps sort of like hiding behind a gallery a little bit mm. right and you know it, and i think from a personal development perspective for me personally it was really good to have to put myself out there in that way and to get through the kind of cringe of doing that um in a way and um um and i think that yeah i mean i used to kind of people would be like oh you know i'd want to buy some want to buy some of your work and i'd be like oh i don't even know what my prices are and it was kind of and i think some of that was a self-worth thing i think that artists and creative people often experience bullying when they're younger and so i feel like it's very common for creative people to um like have a kind of uh yeah to build up a sense of self-worth through yeah. like the work and the relative or the perceived success of their work and so i feel like i'm always trying to work through that stuff on a personal level so that i can get beyond it and then just be making the work and it doesn't mean that i'm not going to like make strategic decisions to make sure that my work isn't uh to to make sure that my work is like um uh supported in the best way possible but it yeah it's um 
So it feels, NFTs feel very bound up in that for me because it was a personally transformative process on that level. In terms of the technology, like I, to me, it's like, it's it's very um, clearly useful. Um, you know, there's lots of digital work that I think was, um, it's almost like people couldn't understand or visualize its worth. And somehow NFTs has like disrupted this idea that digital labor should always be kind of unpaid. Right. Um, we're so used to experiencing yeah. content for free on the internet. And we're mm. so used to giving it away. Um, you know, and there's all the sort of like functions of platform capitalism that have pushed that through. Um, and so in that sense, I think it's 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 really good because I think the majority of like cultural work that people are doing is for the internet at this point. Right. And so I think that it's really important that the people that do that work understand that they're providing value and that um, that, yeah. that value should be captured in some way. It's a way to also educate the consumer in a way, right? Because um, when you give your pieces that value and you do, do claim that space, mm. then it sort of like educates people that, hey, not everything that's on the internet is free and it doesn't have yeah. to be. And you've got artists like Marina Abramovich and Matthew Barney, and like who have always struggled with things like this. You know, you can obviously have editions of DVDs, but then people would rip them. And right. so, yeah just really puts uh, an end to that yeah yeah and because and what's nice about it is is that the work itself can still be freely distributed without if anything the more that the work is distributed the more that that actually impacts on the value because you know it's like the work then becomes more famous or something mm. um but i think it's i think we're a long way from seeing the full impact of the technology because i feel like i think that it's with Marina Bramovich and Matthew Barney, I think that's the really good examples of like how the technology can and ultimately will be used. Because I often wonder like how much of, you know, like human culture has been shaped by the sort of financial potential of making wall-based works. So, you know, a painting is sort of quite easily provably unique. They're relatively easy to transport and therefore they're relatively easy to buy and sell and i think that um you know in a in a way and other people have said this like a painting is the og nft um in terms of that ability to financialize as an object and i think if we can add that functionality to literally anything like a performance like you know um then I think, like, actually, the implications of that in terms of for culture are positive. But I don't think we are at a point of, like, that's that's obviously that's happening, but not. It's not all artists, and it's not. Um, I don't think it's taken hold yet, but I think it will shift. Hmm. Okay. If you had to take a guess, where do you think? Um, art is evolving together with technology. Where where is it leading? Um, <laughs> I I mean I guess something that I think about is um, uh, I feel like once we get a kind of convincing augmented reality device that everybody's using, um, I don't think in ten years' time we're going to be holding our phones up to try and like look at a map while we go down the street i do think that there will be some sort of like glasses or lens or something um and i think once that's in place once there's a digital layer in our vision that we can turn on and off at any point i feel like the cultural space that's currently occupied by things like fast fashion and stuff like that will be uh wholly digital so i, f I can totally see people because that's about self-expression that's about connection that's about creating you know tribes around ideas and evolving ideas and it it makes that makes it you know and we're, we're already kind of doing that on social media and I so I I guess I see it in that way and I I think like obviously with smartphones you know everybody has a camera in their hand now everyone's kind of become a photographer 
I feel like um, with AI and I think that the, the complicated nature of generating imagery and art will be removed to the extent where people can kind of create anything they want whenever they want it. And so, um, yeah, I guess that's where I see things going. <laughs> will there be room for artists in a world like that? If um, everyone is kind of an artist or they could be. Yeah. <laughs> everyone's, everyone's inherently creative aren't they just sometimes some people have it suppressed yeah i mean for me like everything is already creative with sort of that's just the nature of reality um and so for me the distinction of a creative person is simply just like a person who's conscious of the inherent creativity of like anything it's like realizing that you can make a choice that is beautiful or meaningful or interesting or challenging or whatever it is that you want, you know, knowing that that opportunity is there. And I guess some people are always going to be more drawn to really leveraging that opportunity. And so I do think we'll still continue to talk about creatives or artists or, but I think that, yeah, I don't think that goes away when you democratize the process of like people uh, being able to define more aspects of their life you know mm -hmm. it's like we still have you know like professional photographers even though everyone has a camera and can take professional photographs uh, you know professional looking photographs you know so I don't yeah I don't I don't worry about that also on a personal level the transformative impact of engaging creativity feels so positive to me i don't fear more people being more creative i was going to ask you about your subjects that you have within your work so the people that you work with um i was going to ask like how closely do you work with people if so um i wanted to talk a little bit about fka twigs because i know you've got a long term sort of working relationship on uh, we're working on photoshop photo shoots and then more recently some of these virtualized paintings uh most notably on her album cover which i've actually got as an lp and it's, it's beautifully printed actually um good. <laughs> and uh i was wondering do, do you work from life or are the subjects sometimes virtual in a sense as as, as an avatar yeah, so most most of it is virtual um but if i am working more specifically like with the project with twigs uh that involved 3d scanning um we were in la and we went and did had a 3d scan done um and um yeah so twigs is a friend and we met like at a party i think and i was like i want to photograph you and she was like, yeah, everyone says that to me. <laughs> and then, um, bizarrely, um, she was talking to a mutual friend and was describing what she wanted. Uh, and this was maybe in like 2011 or something like that. She wanted like this kind of imagery and her friend was like, oh, you should talk to Matthew. And so I got this email from her from Twigs saying, my friend says I should have contacted you. And I was like, yeah, I already said I wanted to do this. <laughs> and I think she was like, what? Like, didn't necessarily <laughs> connect it to the party. Um, uh, but then, like, there's, it's funny because there's been, like, articles where it talks about me discovering her. And I'm very keen to disrupt that narrative because it's, like, it's just, like, not true. Like, as she said, everyone says that to her. <laughs> um, so, yeah, she's very much a creative force. Um I mean, obviously, this goes without saying, I think, but um, but working with her, she's very, um, she knows what she wants, um, but also what's really great, if I'm photographing her, if I'm ever like, uh, sort of, oh, I don't know what we're going to do next or whatever, she like kind of directs me, mm. um, which is, it's amazing to work with somebody like that because yeah it's just a very dynamic process and um and for me like um seeing the like the magdalene tour um and having fed into that world 
you know, and, she, and working with uh, Matthew Josephs as her creative director, we've worked very closely over the years on like fashion imagery. And then Theo Adams, uh, who is like a performance director who was working on the show, we had also like Theo, Matthew and I had worked together on things and it was very much like we'd been making this, you know, these like fashion shoots that looked sort of like religious painting and mm. doing all this, making all this kind of imagery that other, it felt like there kind of hadn't been the context for and suddenly like seeing this show and Twigs like 100% getting what we're doing and feeding into that as well, it really felt like a moment in terms of like, oh, like actually we made our own context for this. It wasn't like, why don't the fashion magazines want us to do this, you know, more than once? Like, um, and so that felt, that was a really kind of like magic creative moment. Um, and I felt really proud to have played a small part in it. Um, but in terms of the other figures in my works, they are made up essentially. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So going back to that software Daz 3D, you can you can use these sliders and you can kind of just like change the body and uh and I find I have to do a bit more to make things look more human. So essentially afterwards I'll kind of take it into like ZBrush and just like move the eye up a bit or something. Yeah. Um, I was gonna talk to you about eyes and they're almost non existent in a realist sense or they appear kind of soulless um what, what what's sort of uh sort of like reason behind this sort of approach or is it i mean i guess i think that in a way by taking the eyes away from trying to look super realistic and maybe leaning into a kind of that i feel like they're closest to like how um some like roman sculpture looks in terms of there being like no pupil and things like that um yeah and i think yeah i found that but if i kind of put it's not always the case because i have done some that are a little bit more sort of naturalistic in terms of there being a pupil and things like that um but i found that it's almost like it's more uncanny when i'm trying to like um make them look real then actually, if I go for this thing, mm -hmm. which it can almost, I guess it's like, I guess there is, I guess if anything, for me, I would want, if there is a suggestion, it's that that these people are kind of in a visionary state and that it's not about, that there's an inward looking, that that, that those, that the people in my pictures are kind of seers in some sense. And then that is like an internal process that relies less on the physical I, if that makes sense. Yeah. Good question. I don't think I've ever fleshed that, that out that before. <laughs> I was going to ask if you ever paint on people, but that is not, I guess. There is, I did do a, um, uh, a fashion photo shoot in 2010 with uh, the makeup artist Alex Box. Yeah. And that definitely, like, look, has, there was like, crazy colored paint all over the bodies and things like that but we didn't apply any paint to the eyeballs so <laughs> <laughs> and i wanted to talk a bit about optimism i know you've had a clothing line related to this and um yeah how do you I mean yourself, i made a t-shirt you uh, I'll, I'll... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no i'll take that the clothing line <laughs> um yeah so i guess when i graduated i was very excited to be alive and to be squatting and yeah uh making huge parties and things like that and um but also culturally i felt like there was a kind of um a sort of uh like a cultural cynicism that was very cool and felt like very much like a status quo that there was a kind of position that wasn't a position that like that like trying to kind of uh, sincerely look for meaning or create idealistic, anything idealistic, that that stuff was essentially naive and kind of unintellectual. Um, and 
I so I kind of set about like uh writing a manifesto and in the process um coined this term optimism as cultural rebellion. Yeah. Um which I think is my like best ever meme. I'm realizing <laughs> because it's like I feel I mean aside from the fact that whenever people are quoting me on it it's always slightly it's slightly off um but it it really feels like it's something where people are like oh and of course it was Matthew that said optimism has cultural rebellion or revolution or whatever um and I'm always kind of yeah surprised by that but it it um and it was before the Obama hope campaign Okay. which felt very much like oh okay this is like something you know a similar kind of action of like trying to um leverage a feeling of like hope or optimism and but it's something that i took quite seriously as a kind of like as an idea or as a proposal to explore i kind of i did like a weekly salon on a saturday afternoon um in Soho, I would be in the same place every 3 p.m. or something for like two or three hours and people would come and we would talk about all types of things. But there was this kind of like thing of like returning to like, is optimism, you know, like, is it an important thing? Is it something that can be created? Mm. Like, like, what is it like? And, you know, like what's problematic about optimism? And, and I think for me, I've been through a real kind of like, journey with that where essentially in my early 20s I was like no this is it everyone else is wrong like this is actually what we need this is how we like get you know like and I think like there was um you know some naivety there but also some power in that um and I think over time it's like you know I I sort of had to understand my own uh toxic positivity in a sense and get through that and to kind of i guess like and in a political sense like kind of lose total faith in the idea of optimism you know that that was actually like that maybe you know it had been a naive and kind of potentially oppressive idea that like you know that you tell people to shift their attitude rather than the very real problems that people face. Um, yeah. You know, but, uh, but now I kind of have a much more nuanced perspective on it and where I'm kind of like, well, toxic positivity is toxic, but positivity is positivity. It's like, and so, yeah, I think, but I definitely needed to go through that arc on a personal level and, and I do think that um, there's a lot that's salvageable from from the idea. Um, but it's just, I don't know, it's one of those things where I talk about it and then I hear other people talk about it and I'm like, yeah, that does sound ridiculous, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's an interesting sort of, that toxic pause. I've never heard that term before, but I was, oh, I was really? watching a documentary of Jonah Hill the other day with his therapist. Um, okay. It's on Netflix. Mm. Uh, it's yeah and um yeah he talks about how when he talks to his therapist he just talks but he almost wants answers right um but doesn't get necessarily the answers or advice but when he talks to his friends his friends do the complete opposite give him advice and it's almost like that sort of human urge to instantly help people i think that that sort of positive well, yeah and that but but i guess what i feel like what or what i'm hearing and what you're saying is that 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 instant desire to help is about uh, minimizing like a negative feeling or emotion in the moment. Mm. So it's like, I want to take this away, even though I guess the therapist has been trained to understand that that negative emotion is useful in some sense, that it's instructive in some sense. And that, you know, we live in a culture that encourages us to divert our attention away from difficult emotions and difficult realities. And so, and I think, you know, optimism can be used in that way. It's like, oh, well, you know, and it, it I guess it's, it's like um, another good term, spiritual bypassing. Right. Um, it's this idea that like, 
you know, that you can kind of soar over something. And I think to a certain extent, there's a personality type thing where um, you can kind of go one way or the other. There's different ways of coping that you can kind of like be somebody who's really um, aware of the difficulties that they experience in their life and very much focused on that and, and therefore able to kind of process things. And But then, you know, I don't know, can one get stuck there and you know and is there is there a kind of um toxic negativity <laughs> like maybe it's sort of in the name but um <laughs> but i yeah i guess ultimately it's about balance and it's about nuance but i think for me when i think about optimism it is that excited energy that sort of propels you towards doing something um yeah. and um I don't think that like being able to identify that and choosing to leaning into that means that one has to be in denial about other aspects of reality. And so, yeah. And it's funny because a lot of the people who were like, a lot of my friends who are like absolutely against it to begin with, (laughs) they're like, no, no, Maki, you were on the money. So it's, I don't know. It's clearly something that, um we can kind of like move through different relationships to at different points in our lives um i'm going to take the opportunity to ask um obviously lots of students are going to be um listening to this mm. so um do you have any advice or any wise words uh for us like any um advice any ideas in term in terms of um self-promotion or how mm. to get galleries to notice you right. or just anything about like figuring out the um your path in a way yeah um i, I think that um like it is definitely difficult to kind of capture galleries interests if they're not sort of already coming to you and so I think that um something that I think is really powerful and something that worked well for me was um creating my own context for my work and I think that getting together with other um with your friends people you respect creatively and doing projects together um whether that's organizing exhibitions or you know organizing exhibitions online or getting together and starting like a print shop together or something where you sell editions or whatever and you know maybe you can everybody who gets involved can you know there's i don't know collective i i so yeah i think and i think people pay attention to that they pay attention to the people that they think, oh, these people are going to do it with or without me. So actually mm. that person already has a lot of steam, you know, and I think the thing about doing things together is that you're not just shouting out your own work. You suddenly have a context and everybody can almost talk about everybody else's work. And then by association, everybody's work gets talked about. And so it's, you get to get past some of that, um, the discomfort of like, self-promotion which as i kind of addressed earlier can feel difficult but is not problematic and i think it's like it's important like it's important to like i find that like when i'm posting a lot on social media if i've got a lot of things to promote i get to the point where i'm like oh my god everyone must be so annoyed with me (laughs) (laughs) and then i think to myself well hang on a second who do I know that posts a lot of stuff and so I think about a friend who's really really good at very regularly posting content I'm like, that is not annoying. <laughs> no, because you, you know? actually want to see what they're doing, right? Exactly. And it it's I think the thing is also is like it's so easy to get caught in like judging the metrics of these things of like, oh well, that one got loads of likes or views or whatever, or why isn't this one? And I think it's really dangerous to kind of overly analyze that stuff because we don't mm. know like we don't know what's under the hood on these platforms. And, um, and I've, I've been involved in like, uh, I don't know, like, for example, like a Twitter space where there were maybe like 
there were not very many people there, like eight people there or something. But then one person who's in the audience is messaging me about something that's actually really important. And so I think it's like, it's, yeah, it's just to actually just keep, keep going and to put your work out there and don't like, I think it, it can feel pretty for some people in particular, it can feel very tempting to kind of say, well, I'm going to start putting my work out there once I get to a certain level or like once the work is there or like my work isn't good enough yet or you know and i uh in my experience there is a deep vulnerability to kind of sharing your work from the beginning and just being very consistent about that um on the internet um but at the same time once you've shared something you have to make something else and so right. actually that's once you've kind of let go of it in some sense, then that's there's a vacuum that has to be filled. And so I think it's really healthy for kind of um, for keeping on working and making stuff. And I know a lot of people who have kind of wanted to hold stuff back, but they've ended up uh, procrastinating and then not understanding why they kind of like don't have an audience. Um, but it's it's like, it's simply because people aren't seeing what they're doing. And then when they have started to share stuff, they're like, oh my God, this is fine. And actually there's loads of nice <laughs> response. Um, but I guess the other thing is, is that I feel like in terms of creative process, my mistakes have often, or kind of unexpected outcomes have often been the seed of like the majority of my originality and things like that. So I've gone into something thinking I know exactly what I want to do. But by doing it and putting it out there, I've suddenly seen something about something which I can then go back and intentionally amplify. So like right. the painting onto the figures, that was only there because while I was trying to do something else, I threw a texture onto a sphere and I was like, that looks like a painted ball. And so like, yeah, it's um, you have to put yourself in the context where you can ha make mistakes in a sense so you just have it's just to do it. hard to make mistakes and ha making mistakes with the public it's like even a yeah, but no bit more cares. daunting yeah no. true yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a sobering truth but literally no we're not that significant and, right. and the thing about the internet is is that the big failure on the internet is no one seeing what you're doing but like it's like Therefore, it doesn't matter because no one's seeing what you're doing. It's like, <laughs> so you just have to kind of keep throwing things. Get over it, yeah. Yeah, and 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 I think that a lot of that perfectionism of like not wanting to make mistakes or even identifying something as a mistake because that's a subjective idea anyway. Sure. Um, is that yeah? It's not um, uh, like it's. Uh, that's yeah so that perfectionism comes from holding myself to very high account and again it, it comes back to this thing of self-worth and so i think that it's yeah if i i think that if creative people all did like trauma healing and got over all that stuff that would like change the world because it um because the things that creative people make influences everybody else and at the moment, I think a lot of creative people are like oh, creating from this space of fear. Great. Yeah, it's been really good uh, chatting, but we, we just have one more question that I ask all the guests. So yeah. if you were to have your own art school, interdisciplinary, if you yeah. like, if you were to design one handout, so like some form of takeaway, be it a PDF or a document, mm. so what would that be so i'm thinking like resources or bits of information or sort of process anything it can be it would probably be some sort of like manifesto on healing because oh, nice. i feel like that is i just think i just feel like um and it's an idealistic notion but i really feel that um the sensitivities of creative people are like what the world needs and I think that the insecurities that um, are so common um, around creativity, um, if we can, like, you know, like, yeah, learn 
to love ourselves and find ways to express that then the creativity will just like be doing itself it's no longer like i mean you hear artists talk about or like musicians in particular will talk about this like oh i you know particular so people that have like a religious connection they'll kind of they're sort of like i don't i'm not the one doing this like i'm just letting it flow through mm-hmm. me it's a gift and that can sound like a little bit sort of like i don't know like um but i think i mean regardless of what it sounds like i think that developing that type of relationship where you're just sort of the witness to a process that's unfolding rather than you know the the ego-based center of being a genius like once that's gone you're just lucky because you're watching this life that is beautiful as a process and constantly surprising and like that's just a positive thing to put into the world and there's so much competition and insecurity in trying to get certain types of successes that you know we use as a kind of replacement for that more simple relationship to divine creativity yeah so some sort of manifesto along those lines sounds great (laughs) excellent thank you so much thanks for listening to artcast today we were joined by matthew stone and laura leon who is from our access to he in art and design at the chelsea center You can check out Matthew's work at matthewstone.co.uk, which also features a virtual gallery, which is really well produced. For the next episode, we will be joined by Turner Prize winning artist, Laure Preveau.